please take your Bibles and find the book of Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 8. We are nearly two-thirds of the way through 2020. And it seems that this is a year in which the world has gone bananas. There's no shortage of support for this claim. Who would have thought that Zoom fatigue, Zoom bombing, social distancing, super spreader, herd immunity, or asymptomatic vector would enter our daily vocabulary. In addition to this public health crisis, we're witnessing aggressive secularization, dramatic shifts in the way basic human identity and sexuality is understood. There is political turmoil, civil unrest, poor leadership in our highest offices, and to amplify the chaos... It's an election year. All of this raises the question, how are Christians to get on when the world goes crazy? Maybe better said, what is a God-honoring response to the challenges that face us? Throughout the ages, God's people have regularly been faced with ever-present turmoil that comes from living in an unstable world. And the accompanying concern for how they are to live unto God in the midst of that. The circumstances of life serve as a sort of EKG for the spiritual health of God's people. Circumstances, particularly difficulties, reveal areas of stable faith, but also areas of faithlessness. And the prophet Isaiah addressed a people living amidst trying circumstances in the middle of the 8th century B.C. I ask you to follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, down through chapter 9, verse 7. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living, 
to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah carried out his ministry during days that in some ways sound very familiar to ours. At that time, the kingdom was divided, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Isaiah's prophetic ministry primarily concerned Judah, though not exclusively. The people of Judah were plagued by religious hypocrisy and vain worship. Failed leaders oversaw injustice and oppression. They loved bribes and failed to defend orphans and widows. Beyond that, the nation was rife with sin. God referred to his own people, Judah, as Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 1. A sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They had so perverted God's law that evil was called good and good was called evil, Isaiah 5.20. Perhaps the greatest symptom of the nation's spiritual sickness was that prideful confidence in man had actually supplanted humble dependence on the Lord. They had become wise in their own eyes, trusting human intuition over divine wisdom. And this faithlessness that plagued the nation is exemplified in their king, Ahaz. Ahaz had major political and spiritual troubles. Israel or the northern tribes had aligned with Syria against Judah. 
Judah, where Ahaz reigned from Jerusalem, was also having trouble with Tyre, with Sidon, with Philistia, and with Edom. And beyond all of these nations, the Assyrians loomed. Ahaz was in a foreign policy mess with bleak prospects. But the Lord intervenes. Chapter 7, he intervenes through Isaiah and tells Ahaz that there is no need to fear. For the Lord will be with his people. The plans against Judah will not stand. Now, for a faithful Davidic king, this would have been a great comfort. But Ahaz was not faithful. He was fickle. He was faithless. He's offered a miraculous sign as evidence of God's sure presence, but he refuses and ultimately places his confidence in his own ability to negotiate protection from the Assyrians. He took a portion of wealth from the temple, from elsewhere in the kingdom, and gave it to the king of Assyria to purchase their protection. He fears the nations more than the Lord. And what's the outcome of this? Well, initially, there's some good news for Ahaz and Judah. The alliance of Syria-Israel against Judah will not succeed, and we see that prophesied in chapter 7. But there's also bad news. The Lord will bring judgment upon Judah. Faithlessness will not be rewarded. After Assyria destroys the Syria-Israel alliance, the Lord will use that nation to afflict Judah. Chapter 8, verse 6, And as much as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remelia, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. This ominous prophecy would play out over the next 30 years until Sennacherib's siege reached the very neck of Judah, that is, Jerusalem, which he surrounded during the reign of King Hezekiah. Ahaz's attempt at diplomacy rather than dependence will, will end, according to this prophecy, as a colossal failure. And the accounts given to us in Kings and Chronicles reveal that in pathetic desperation, Ahaz results to idolatry, he turns to foreign gods, he even closes the temple and sets up altars to idols throughout Jerusalem and throughout Judah. That's the context for Isaiah's address that begins in verse 11. When he turns his attention to the faithful few that were living unto God amidst a community and in a nation where God was disregarded. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me, he says in verse 11. This power or strong hand of the Lord impresses upon Isaiah the importance or the severity of this message. The Lord gave Isaiah much to say throughout his ministry, so the fact that he characterizes it in this way denotes the extraordinary impact and force that was pressed upon him by the Lord. This message, this instruction, was primarily a warning. The term for instruction also carries the idea of chastening or rebuke or admonishment. In other words, it's not a gentle suggestion, but a firm word of warning and instructive guidance for God's people. What's the specific warning? Verse 11 again. He instructed me not to walk 
in the way of this people. Walk refers to the course of life. He's saying, don't act as these people act. Don't think as these people think. And as will be shown in greater detail in the verses before us, the general tenor of this people was faithlessness. In contrast, Isaiah and his followers are called to avoid the path of faithlessness and to pursue the path of stable faith. This whole section of Isaiah's prophecy is a call to stable faith in an unstable world. And in that call, Isaiah provides God's people with guideposts for their walk. That is, points of guidance that help us to consider how we're living amidst an unstable world. It helps us to to direct our concern toward questions like, what should be our greatest concern when the world falls to pieces? Where should we turn for guidance in confusing times? What is our ultimate hope for lasting joy? We're going to organize our study of these verses around three guideposts for stable faith in an unstable world. And our first guidepost comes in verses 11 through 15, and that is a warning against misplaced concern. Look again at verse 11. Who are this people? Who are the this people the Lord's referring to? The disobedient people of God. Wayward Judah. And what is the way in which they were walking? Again, in a word, faithlessness. They were erratic. They were scared. Look back up at chapter 7, verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. God said in verse 4, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Romelia. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand nor come to pass. That was God's answer. Yet they were terrified of the coming trouble from the surrounding nations. They were consumed with concern over politics and events that were out of their control. How do we know that? Because of the warning. Verse 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. This, the way of this people looks like this. You are not to say, he warns them, it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. The people were scared and they're talking about Conspiracies, And we don't know exactly what the content of the conspiracy was that the Lord is referring to. The fact that the Lord, through Isaiah, refers to all that they called conspiracy. So seems it most likely concerns all of the speculations that could have been swirling about the Syrian-Israel alliance, the other nations involved, Judah's political dealings through King Ahaz. And the point here is not so much that we know exactly the content of the conspiracy, but the misplaced concern that brings about fear. Verse 12 again. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Evidently, constant chatter about conspiracies and rumors about what was really going on led to widespread fear in Judah. And Isaiah and the faithful are warned. They're instructed. They're warned against pursuing that path. 
It sounds so much like today when we read those verses. It has been a banner year for basement-dwelling conspiracy theorists who found new source material and vast new audiences for their outdated websites and poorly worded analysis. We don't even have to come up with our own worries anymore. Concerns are set before us daily that provoke fear and anxiety in our hearts. Such concerns are peddled across news outlets and then we frenetically like and share and retweet and post across any platform we can get our hands on. Commenting on this verse, Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis notes, it's hard not to get caught up in the contemporary hysteria of choice. He's right. It is hard. The people of Judah were caught up in the hysteria of their day, and today there are many hysterias that we have to choose from. Yet, the warning here is that God's people are not to be hysterical about that which concerns the sons of disobedience. We're not to be driven by the same things that drive those who don't know the Lord to hysteria. Such concerns are misplaced. The foremost concern for the faithful, we're going to be told, is God himself. Stable faith does not grant life-controlling fear and awe to circumstances, but to the Lord himself. God's people are not to fear what this people, what the people in the world fear. Instead, verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. In spite of the terrifying news of Judah's coming judgment at the hand of Assyria, God had assured the faithful remnant of his help and of his presence. Chapter 8, verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. The plans and plottings of the nations ultimately would not stand against the eternal purposes and power of the Lord. And the faithful had that promise, that promise of God's presence, and that promise was to be enough for them. And in light of that promise and what they have to believe God and trust God in, that's when he warns them, don't fear what the world fears. Fear me, the Lord says. These words are penetrating. The the same terminology that he uses about the frenetic conspiracy-fearing individuals are applied to God himself as a prescription for the faithful. God is to be feared, not the conspiracies of the faithless. God is to be awed, not the machinations of the nations. Appropriately directed fear and awe are present when the Lord of hosts is sanctified by the faithful. That is, when the Lord is set apart in our hearts. When he is regarded as he really is. When he is regarded as holy. That's what this is prescribing. Lord of hosts in verse 13 harkens back to the cry of the seraphim in Isaiah 6. Who called out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
To call the Lord holy is to speak of his essential being. What theologians have called his majestic and moral otherness. It is essentially everything about him that sets him apart from creation and elevates him above creation. Calling God holy is to ascribe to him transcendent greatness. His, it, it, it's his utter uniqueness. That's what's meant by otherness. To rightly regard or honor him as holy, to sanctify him or set him apart in our hearts is to treat him as God with all of the appropriate distinction that he deserves. That's what's commanded here. We could sum up the instruction of the warning this way. Don't fearfully tiptoe through life's troubling circumstances as if you don't know the God who is in control. You serve the Lord of hosts. Act like it. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what God is saying through Isaiah. Now notice that not only does this warning forbid fearing what the world fears, it also by implication forbids indifference. You can't be indifferent or passive about what is going on in your life circumstances and also at the same time live with proper regard for God is holy. Some of us may not be tempted toward anxiety and concern over what the world is concerned with, but we instead just simply don't care. And yet here the faithful are called to fear the Lord and to esteem him rightly. We're reminded that stable faith doesn't act in indifference, it acts in dependence. It seeks the Lord for help, it cries to him for relief, and it responds in humble submission to his will. Our relation to God in any and all circumstances is to be our chief concern. That's the point of verses 12 and 13. As he moves on to verses 14 and 15, he contrasts the significant consequences of where we place our concern. God will be a security to those who rightly regard him, to those who conduct themselves with a proper esteem and fear and regard for the Lord, but he'll be a stumbling block for those who don't. Verse 14, the Lord of hosts, again, regarded as holy, if he's your fear, if he's your joy, then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Proper regard for God as holy will lead to protection and comfort, while a neglect of God will result in calamity. And here the tragic case of Israel and Judah are highlighted as the faithless will stumble over the Lord. They've disregarded him, but they still have to deal with him. That's the point of these verses. There's no neutrality. Even those who ignore God amidst all manner of circumstances will eventually be forced to reckon with him. These verses call faithlessness or the faithless to repentance, and they warn the faithful to remain on the path of fearing the Lord. For as Psalm 103.17 says, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Man-centeredness, fear of man, was the spirit of the age in Isaiah's Judah. Concern for man to the neglect of God. 
concern for the policies of the nations to the neglect of the God who controls the nations. Back in chapter 2, verse 22, the prophet said this, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? This wrong esteem of man corresponds with a wrong regard for God in the heart. And it manifests itself as faithlessness toward the Lord. Bruce Ware helpfully warns that a proper estimation of God over and against misplaced concern for man is essential to a life of stable faith. He writes this, Whether we behold and believe and adore and trust and honor and love the true and living God, or whether we belittle and distort and minimize and diminish God as we conceive him in order to magnify and enlarge and overextend the significance of us, this at bottom is what is at stake. In a culture saturated with the esteem of self and marred by the decline of deity, we stand in need of beholding God for who he is. We need desperately to be humbled and amazed at the infinite splendor of his unrivaled greatness and the unspeakable wealth of his lavish goodness. We must marvel at his blinding glory and fall astonished at his benevolent grace. If we are to escape the cult of self and find instead the true meaning of life and the path of true satisfaction, if we are to give God the glory rightly and exclusively owed to him, that is, if we are to know what truly promotes both our good and his glory, we must behold God for who he is. That's the warning of this first section. That's our first guidepost. Misplaced concern is concerned with the world, the circumstances, all that's swirling around. Rightly placed concern is to be concerned with God for who he is. To walk the path of faithfulness is to avoid misplaced concern. Instead, proceeding through life, beholding our holy God. And we find a second guidepost for stable faith in an unstable world in verses 16 through 22. And that is a warning against misplaced trust. Our second guidepost is a warning against misplaced trust. Verses 16 through 20 contrast the objects of trust that the people were placing their trust in or their dependence on. Note the repetition of law and testimony in verses 16 and then again in verse 20. The contrast here is between God's word and all other sources of insight and direction, which are characterized in verse 19. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. Verse 16 refers to the preservation of God's word in the heart of the faithful. Isaiah is most likely speaking, and he's talking about preserving what the Lord has said in the hearts of those who follow the Lord, who were Isaiah's disciples. Verse 17 then demonstrates stable faith. Personally, as Isaiah himself professes his confidence in the revealed word of the Lord. In contrast to all those who have forgotten the Lord, resulting in the Lord's turning away, referred to here as Jacob, Isaiah will eagerly wait. It's a posture of faith. 
a posture of dependence. Verse 18 then highlights the testimony, an aspect of the promise that the Lord has given to his people, uniquely through the signs and wonders that were signified by Isaiah's children. Isaiah's name himself means God saves. Isaiah's son, Shir Jashub, signified the promise of restoration. We see that in chapter 7, verse 3. His son with the best name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, signified the coming of Assyria in judgment. The point here is that all of Isaiah's children, even, even Isaiah himself and his children's names, were a testimony of the Lord's word. Their very lives were evidence of the God's sure promises. Verses 19 through 20 contain then the actual warning against misplaced trust. When they say to you, again, that people, the faithless, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Where must the faithful turn when trouble comes upon the land? When the fickle suggest seeking knowledge from below, God's people are instead to inquire of their Lord. That's what is commanded. This problem of misplaced trust is exemplified in Ahaz's response to God. The word of the Lord came to Ahaz. It was there. It was clear. And instead he chose to trust other wisdom. His own alliances, even seeking insight from false gods instead of God's sure promises. And that action was actually directly opposed to the testimony that had been given through the prophet that the Lord would be with his people, that they didn't need to fear, that they didn't need to shake like the trees in the wind. Any source of so-called knowledge and wisdom that does not speak according to the law and to the testimony, that does not speak according to the word of God, Isaiah says, has no light, has no dawn. In verses 21 through 22 then show the consequences of the misplaced trust. Those who seek that which has no dawn will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. The misguided pseudo-wisdom rewards its seekers with destitution and complete dissatisfaction for all that they hoped in. All that they trusted in leaves them empty and angry. Their utter hopelessness is vividly portrayed in verse 22. Those who trust in what has no light will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Though the language and flow of these verses is somewhat challenging, the warning is very straightforward. Don't trust that which has no light. Don't trust that which is not in accord with God's law and God's testimony. To the law and to the testimony is a watchword for us in a day of 
false messages, proud men and women, and widespread darkness to the law and to the testimony. Don't misplace your trust. Don't stake your life on that which has no light and only leads to darkness. Now these, these warnings, these first two guideposts, these warnings against faithlessness invite us to, to, to sit back or press in and evaluate how we're dealing with the present turmoil in our region, in our country, in our world. Are we spending our days groping and grasping for man-made solutions, consuming and peddling conspiracies, fostering fear and anxiety? A study this week led me to just jot down a couple symptoms of instability in our hearts. Greater worry over physical fleeting outcomes than spiritual enduring outcomes. An example, maybe more concern over economic decline than the potential for your own spiritual decline. Greater attention to the hysteria of the day than to the promises of God's word. How easy is it to traffic through page after page after page of news, real and not so real, instead of sitting at the feet of the Lord in his word? Another symptom would be a greater desire to be vindicated in our assessment of the politics of the day than to be growing in devotion and personal godliness. Quite simply, we're more preoccupied with what's going on around us and wanting to find our place in that assessment than we are with our own personal devotion and godliness, our own growth in holiness. Funny, in days such as this, what if God somehow pulled back the curtain of time and every suspicion that we had about what was going on was confirmed? What if everything we thought about what was going on, even in the specifics, were proven right? The reality is misplaced fears and misplaced trust would still be unjustified. God has not asked us to determine the future, but to trust him in the present, in the midst of challenging circumstances. And that trust doesn't mean ease and comfort. Stable faith in an unstable world does not mean ease and comfort, often just the opposite. The faithful in Isaiah's day would see Israel carried away to Assyria, They would see much of Judah decimated by Sennacherib. But the instruction here is that the faithful should rest in the fear of the Lord and trust in his word and that they would be stabilized. Later in Isaiah, the Lord positively depicts his transformed people in terms that are very close to our verses here in the warning we just read in chapter 8, verse 13. Listen closely to what characterizes a transformed people in Isaiah 29, 23. They will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept instruction. That's the inverse of what is called for in verses 12 and 13. Rather than fearing what the people fear, transformed people sanctify the Lord's name. Rather than criticizing and seeking out other avenues of knowledge and information, those who err in mind will know the truth. They will accept the instruction of the Lord. That's the picture of stable faith that all of God's redeemed in Christ are called to pursue. That's what we are called to pursue amidst difficult circumstances. As the word of God transforms our thinking, 
we face an unstable world humbly and reverently trusting God and his purposes for our lives. Now, our first two guideposts come in the form of, of really stern warning. Now, the third guidepost strikes a, a hopeful tone, an eternally hopeful tone, confronting and redirecting the hope of those who trust in the Lord. In contrast to the darkness that results from misplaced trust, the Lord will graciously bring light to his people. Our third guidepost for stable faith in an unstable world is a promise that confronts misplaced hope. That comes to us in chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Note the transition from verse 22. Gloom and anguish as a result of misplaced trust now. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with, right, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. These are familiar verses. And I hope that hearing them again in the context of Isaiah's ministry adds a bit of texture and color. In verse 1, the, the idea of gloom and anguish connects this verse back with 22, as we said, and it's a dramatic contrast. The Lord is going to dramatically turn the circumstances of the people. The geography here seems to emphasize that the despised areas of Israel for first conquered by the Assyrians and later a region of derision where Christ's ministry would commence would be touched by the Lord. Verse 2 describes transformation, a reversal of what has been the course of life for the faithless. No longer will the nation seek that which cannot give light. In contrast, a great light will shine upon them. And this transformation results in great rejoicing, which is pictured in verse 3. Note again the contrast with the gloom and anguish and the anger and the cursings in verse 21. Isaiah is here using illustrations to communicate the blessedness of what the Lord's going to bring to pass. The joy will be as it is when the Lord provides a bountiful harvest or when a conquering victory or army returns in victory. And then verses 4, 5, and 6 each give reasons for that rejoicing and that wonder and marveling among the transformed people. In verse 4, God will grant victory to the nation. 
a victory like when Gideon's band of 300 was given victory over the Midianites to showcase God's power. Verse 5, such victory will lead to the burning of the tools of war. And then verse 6, the reason for the victory, the ultimate reason for the joy, and the means of accomplishing all that the Lord says he will accomplish for his people. The forever reign of a righteous Messiah. Note the irony here of the Lord's emphasis on children. Just quickly. The man-centered people had exalted themselves, and so what was the sign that God offered Ahaz? The birth of a child. The names of Isaiah's children are signs to the people of God's truth. And here, the solution to what ails, the ultimate hope for God's people is a child. Note also the contrast of who and what this child would be compared to the Davidic king ruling at the time the prophecy was given. Ahaz was a blind man leading the blind. His fear and trembling exemplified the people's fear and trembling. His lack of regard for the holiness of God exemplified the people's contempt for their Lord. His idolatry and religious hypocrisy was typical of the nation. His reign was one of darkness. But... This coming child, this Davidic king, would bring light. He would bring a glorious kingdom, a kingdom of righteous justice and peace. And this promise, strategically located here, confronts the misplaced hopes that came from fearing what the people feared, trusting what the world trusts. Let me just say, as an aside, as our nation careens toward November, we must remember that messianic hope must never be afforded in our hearts to any political figure or political action. That hope is reserved for one, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. Verses 6 and 7 demand more detail and attention than we're going to give them this morning, but I want you to see the connection of hope in God's glorious promise here to the warnings against faithlessness in the preceding verses. Verse 7 tells us that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is what is going to accomplish all of this, and that's a fitting final word to what began in chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord of hosts that is to be feared and awed and rightly esteemed will bring about this, this wonderful promise, this wonderful solution, not the conspiracies of the nations. It is the trustworthy word of God that promises this ultimate solution, not the mediums and the spiritists that have no light. It is the promise of a child, a divine son, a divine king that deserves our hope when circumstances appear hopeless. Now, our relationship to this promised Messiah is both different and the same as that as the faithful in Isaiah's day. It's different in that some 27 centuries removed from this prophecy, we know that this child would be the son miraculously born in Bethlehem the one who would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. This child, 
this son of God, this man from Nazareth, would be the means of light in Galilee as he began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know that as a necessary piece of this promised restoration that God the Father caused the iniquity of all who would be his people to fall on him. Before ruling on David's throne and establishing worldwide peace and righteous stability, the Messiah would first be pierced for transgressions and crushed for iniquities so that God would not deal with believers according to their sins nor reward them according to their iniquities, instead crushing the very son that he gave, this son that was promised. We know, different from the faithful in Isaiah's day, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, defeating sin and death once for all, and that for all who believe, there's no fear of perishing, but enjoying instead everlasting life. That is the good news. And if you don't believe that, you walk in gloom and anguish and in darkness. But because of Christ, the Lord says this this morning, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Those words from Isaiah chapter 1 are true to all who hear because of Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection. Those who know Christ know that forgiveness. But we do not yet know the fullness, the, the complete picture of the, the promise made in Isaiah chapter 9. Christ's rule and reign has not yet been consummated. It has not yet been brought to its fullness. And in that way, our perspective is the same as it was for Isaiah and the faithful of his day. We join today in 2020 the faithful remnant across the ages in hope for the consummation when the Messiah returns. Like them and their hope that was to keep them stable in the midst of an unstable world, that is our hope. We know more of the puzzle, but we look forward to the coming king who will establish all that it says he will establish. He's coming back. The government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the peace he establishes. He will be king forevermore. That is rightly placed hope in an unstable world. Those who have rightly regarded the Lord and his holiness as the chief concern of their hearts, those who have properly placed their trust in his law and his testimony, they rest their hope on what he will finally accomplish by his zeal when Christ comes back. And that is what aids stable faith. That's what keeps God's people on the path of stability in a world that's very unstable. 